Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll give you a chance to turn there. I know there's still some coffee back there. We'll, we'll kind of stall out. We, we don't want to start without everybody getting their coffee. Nehemiah chapter 1. This morning we're going to talk about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And in this day and age that we live in, and I, I hope you understand and can appreciate this, it's important uh, that we're sanctified. And let me, well, let me pray to sanctify this occasion, and we'll talk about what it means to be sanctified, and then we'll, we'll get into the study. And so, Father, we just thank you that you're a holy God, uh, that you're set apart. Um, there was no one like Jehovah, and uh, what a glorious truth. That you have called us into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of darkness, to be set apart as your children. And Lord, as the world increasingly rejects you and your truth, Lord, we're looking like a bunch of odd ducks. And the temptation for us is to want to fit in with the world. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would use this morning's uh, scripture, this time of study, to encourage us to be a sanctified people, a consecrated people, a people that are set apart unto you, walking in the strength of the Spirit for your glory. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. The Bible tells us that sanctification is God's will for our lives. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And the word simply means to be set apart, as I've already spoken to or alluded to. And it's related to the word saint. And the neat thing is, um, saints aren't just dead people that were posthumously sort of kind of by virtue of a council uh, and some decrees uh, awarded the uh, sainthood. You know, kind of we look back and we look at Saint so-and-so or Saint so, you know, I don't even know all the Catholic names for all the different saints, but be that as it may. That if you're a born-again child of God this morning, you're a saint. It sounds weird, doesn't it? Like, you could call me St. Dean. Now, don't do it. <laughs> but, you know, we could go around at, at Saint so-and-so and say, because you're a saint. And it's simply related to the word sanctified because you're set apart unto the Lord. So we're going to be in the book of, of Nehemiah, but I, I do want to kind of set the historical context and timetable here. Nehemiah is one of three, and here's a $10 word for you, post-exilic books post-exilic being post-exile. You see, for 70 years, the people of God were in exile. You'll remember, uh, if, you, if you do, from uh, your study in the Old Testament, that the northern ten tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, was taken into captivity by the Assyrian nation. Very cruel people. 
the southern uh, tribes of uh, the nation of Judah, Judah and Benjamin, were taken into captivity by Babylon. It was during their captivity that a new empire came on the world scene known as the Medo-Persian Empire. They conquered the Assyrians, they conquered the Babylonians. And the Medo-Persian Empire had a different MO in terms of how they uh, dealt with captive people groups. You see, the Assyrians and the Babylonians were similar in that they wanted to take the peoples uh, from these nations that they captive and scatter them throughout their empire thus assimilating them into their culture. Whereas the Medo-Persian Empire wanted the people groups to be in their homelands where they would rule them. They would be puppet states. They didn't want, it was a different sort of approach, they didn't want different people groups mingling with their, with their culture. They wanted to have their culture remain intact. So at the end of 70 years, and I'll explain how this sort of worked out, we get to this post-exilic period. There are three books that were written regarding this post-exile time. You have the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, and the book of Esther. Ezra, there's three different ways. Let me kind of back up. There's three different waves of refugees or, or uh, ex exiles that return to the land. You have one wave that returns under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And then about 50 years after Zerubbabel, you have a second wave that returns under Ezra, the author of the book of Ezra, and also uh, First and Second Chronicles. And then you have the third wave that returns under the leadership of Nehemiah. There's going to be a quiz, so I hope you're taking notes. Now, You'll catch some of this, so just continue to bear with me, because it sets the stage. The book of Esther takes place during the 50-year interlude between Zerubbabel, the first wave, and Ezra, the second wave. And it's interesting and it's fascinating to note that Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther are all types or pictures of the Holy Spirit. There were a million captives in Persia, and only 50,000 returned. All of them could have returned. But that vast majority of people in captivity were quite happy with their life. They had it good with the Persian Empire, and so they chose not to return. The hardships, the rigors of a long trip a thousand miles away and starting anew, starting afresh in a city that is in ruins, in a country that has been burnt to the ground. And they were willing to just sort of stay where they were. They had worship in uh, Babylon, in Assyria, and then ultimately in Persia. Synagogues began during the captivity. There were no synagogues prior to the captivity they would all go to temple to worship. And so they, would, they had uh, the reading of the Torah. Um, they had all the, the functions of, of you know, their, their faith. And so not many would return. So as I said, Ezra and Nehemiah are types of the Holy Spirit. Ezra means helper. It's an abbreviated uh, form of Azariah, Ezra is. 
that it means helper. Jesus, um, in John in 16, says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the helper is the Holy Spirit. In that same section, that upper room discourse, John, especially in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus also refers to uh, the Holy Spirit as the comforter. Ezra's, excuse me, Nehemiah's name means comforter. So you have a people group that come out in the first wave. They build a temple under Zerubbabel. But their hearts aren't right before the Lord. Fifty years go on. Ezra comes in, and Ezra, a priest, restores the hearts of the people towards God. And then Nehemiah, as we're going to see in our text this morning, gets word that the walls and the gates are destroyed. And this is where we're going to come right back in talking about sanctification. That the walls and the gates are destroyed, and his hearts are broken. So here's the key, if you will, to understanding when we're talking about walls and gates, we're not talking about architecture, right? There's got to be some deeper application than simply broken down walls and burnt gates. The walls and the gates represented the sanctification or the separation of the people. With those walls broken down and those gates burnt up, they were open to the influence of the outside world. They were open to the attacks of the enemy. And as a matter of fact, uh, to illustrate this, Jesus uses and talks about gates metaphorically on a couple of occasions. It's in John 10, I believe, I'm doing this from memory, um, that he says, I am the gate of the sheepfold. No one enters but through me. All others that enter are thieves and robbers. Later, uh, it's in Matthew uh, in 16, he's at this little getaway with the disciples, and he says, well, who do men say that I am? And, you know, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the prophet, and Peter gives that good confession, well, you're, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Well done, you know, Peter, son of, you know, Peter, uh, or Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed to you, this to you, but my Father who is in heaven he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, this good confession that he is the Messiah, I will build my kingdom, and the gates of what? Hell will not prevail against it. Obviously, gates aren't implements of warfare, right? Though It's a metaphor. Gates were the places in antiquity where the judges would reside to hear uh, disputes, land disputes, someone stole someone's sheep, there was a water dispute over a well, you name it. They would go to the gates of the city where the leaders of the gates would make judgments and determinations. There would be civic matters would be dealt with at the gates. So gates represent wisdom. Gates represent judgment and discernment, understanding. 
As it relates to sanctification, when our gates are burnt up, when our walls are down, we're subject to attack. We're subject to making bad choices. We're subject to receiving bad and negative influence from the world. It's in Joshua 2 and verse 5 where they would have the gates open during the day, uh, during the light, and in the evening, during the darkness, the gates would be closed. And it's a wonderful picture for us and the gates of our mind and the gates of our heart that our gates are only open to light, not to darkness. So Ezra, or excuse me, Nehemiah, as we'll see here, gets word that the gates are destroyed, the walls are, are broken down, and we're going to get into the text here, and uh, it's just 11 verses, but we'll make our way through Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 12th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. Shushan can also be uh, rendered Susa, S-U-S-A. The month of Chislev would be mid-November through mid-December. And it's in the 12th year in Shushan, which was the winter palace of the Persian king. Shushan happens to be the same place that the whole book of Esther happens in. And so there's this connection. They're, they're, they're contemporaries. And then Hanani, one of my brethren, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that poor man's name right. It, sounds, it reminds me of Panini, but then it makes me hungry. So then Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah, and I'll, let me just read verse 3. And they, gave, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the providence are there in great distress and reproach. The walls of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So he gets news. Now, Nehemiah has never been to his ancestral homeland. He's a young man serving in, as we're going to see later, he's serving uh, in the palace with the king. He's a cupbearer. We'll talk about that later. He's never been there. He's been to synagogue, as I mentioned, where the Torah is read, and he's going to pray scripture. He's familiar with the scripture. But he would have known about the city of David. And his heart was broken for the city of Jerusalem when he got this news. So the walls were down, they're vulnerable, and as you read through Ezra, as you read through uh, Nehemiah, you see that there are enemies. There are enemies that attack on the political front, there are enemies that try to discourage, you think you're going to get this city or this temple built back up, and there are enemies that want to join with them and help them. They want to partner with them, and, and of course they're rejected in, this, in their attempts. And it makes them vulnerable. So um, the gates were for, for protection, as I've already uh, explained, and they were incredibly important. And a city whose gates were in ruin was a disgrace. It was an embarrassment for a people group to have a city whose uh, gates and walls uh, were broken down. There's a story in the book of Ruth 
when Boaz negotiated with another relative over the fate of Naomi. Ruth and the legacy of a man named Elimelech, when they reached an agreement, the witness spoke up, and all the people who were at the gate, including the leader, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this wife who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built our family of Israel. So show your strength of character and make a name for yourself in Bethlehem. And so character has as much to do with sanctification as anything. You see, when our gates are down, we don't act in wisdom. We don't use discernment. We don't make wise choices. We are temples of the living God, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. When we accept the Lord and become born-again children, the Holy Spirit comes in to live, uh, live in us. It says in Ephesians 1 that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is a, a guarantee or an earnest payment of what is to come. It's a down payment that we have uh, the living God dwelling in us. And how often, and I've met far too often Christians that are temples, they're born again, and maybe you've met them yourself. And I'll even confess that I've been one of these Christians that while being a temple of God, um, my gates were down, my walls were down. I behaved and acted foolishly. I spoke and said foolish things. Sanctification for the child of God, you see, we're not just to be born again and then to sort of go with the flow. We're to work out our faith with fear and trembling. And it is sanctification that is, is the will of God for our lives. So as children of God, we grow and we are conformed to the Im image of Christ and we reflect Christ. We're to grow intellectually as you study to show thyself approved. We're to grow in character. We're to grow in wisdom. We're not to just, as some do, live foolishly as the world lives. We're to be set apart. The wall, and we think of walls quite often and negatively, don't we? Sometimes we'll think, well, that person has their walls up. I really don't know what's going on in their heart and mind, and I'm trying to connect, I'm trying to reach. And we sometimes view the walls as a, as a negative thing, but I, I want to look at the other side of the coin there as Christians, that there has to be some separation between who we are as children of God and who they are, broadly speaking, as the world, as those living in darkness. We are called to holiness. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart when he hears that these walls are down. We're living in exciting times. We're living in heartbreaking times simultaneously. It's hard to watch. And the pull and the influence on our heart is profound. As we're looked at, and you know the story of the ugly duckling, as we're made to feel as though we're less, as though we're believing in some fairy tale or some myth, as though we're outdated and outmoded, as though we should get hip and get with the times and wake up. It's hard on us, right? I'll be honest, it's hard. Because I don't know that there's even one of us that wants to feel like we're not, you know, we can't fit in in the workplace around the water cooler and, and get in on those conversations and talk about some of the shows that people are watching or some of the books that are being read or some of the music that's, being, that's out there. 
I mean, it's, I, I can just at least maybe speak for myself that there have been times in my walk with God where I felt that, that tension. And, but I have to be willing to be peculiar. Doesn't the Bible say that we're a peculiar people? And we have to, in humility, be okay with being a little, I'm going to say it, weird. <laughs> it's okay. Because I'll tell you, in that peculiarity and that weirdness, I think God would look down and smile and say, they're laying it down. You know, and Jesus said, if you're going to fall after me, pick up your cross daily and do what? Deny yourself. And so we do need to have that wall of separation. And it's a positive thing. Now, Rose was, was sharing the devotional that she read and being fishers of men and, and how quite often we, we want to invite the people in the world into the boat, this being the boat, and how it's important to go out, you know, and catch the fish in the water, as it were. Um, so I think there's, there's points upon which, as the Spirit leads, where we would go through the gate, jump the wall, hop the fence, and go out into the world at the leading of the Holy Spirit to reach the lost and saying, hey, come into our city. Come into our kingdom. Come behind these walls. I see you're heavy laden and burdened and worn, that you're weary, that you're tired, that you're confused. There's an answer. There's a hope. Oh, but that resistance, right? Man, you've got to pray the Holy Spirit touches their heart because they've been told all the things that you've been told about what we believe. Jesus is a fairy tale, is a myth. When we were serving in the UK for a few months, we were over there. It's amazing how they consider Jesus to be on the same plane as the Greek demigods, just a, a mythological figure, uh, a figurehead for morality and goodness, but not real. And I've seen that more and more in our country as well. Anyways, we better get back to the text. What are we going to do here? Verse 4. The first half of verse 4. We won't make it through. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. Sometimes Christians, uh, we make a distinction between our lives in the natural world and our lives in the spiritual world. And it, it doesn't matter what I watch or you know, listen to, as I just referenced. But biblically speaking, if we open ourselves up to dark people or places, our gates are broken down. And Nehemiah understood this about uh, those in Jerusalem. Picking up halfway through verse 4, he says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, and oftentimes when God wants us to, uh, to use a person to reach a specific people or group, he breaks their heart. And I know I'm stopping kind of in mid-thought there. Or as often as uh, we say, he gives them a burden. And so he is mourning, he's weeping, he's fasting, and he's praying. And this is where it starts for us. Um, Romans 8 a great chapter on the Holy Spirit. A great chapter for a lot of reasons. 
But Romans 8 and 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groans which cannot be uttered. Or or it says in some translations, with uh, praise with words that cannot be expressed. And so you see Nehemiah in type interceding as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He says in verse 6, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. So the burden comes when something is wrong. Do you often feel a burden, a broken heart, weeping when things are going well? We celebrate when things are going well. The burden comes from when we set our eyes and understand when things are wrong. And sometimes we tend to avoid the conflict, the challenge, the difficulty of facing up to things that are not pleasant. And it's true. It's, it's, uh, some of us are probably better at going head-on uh, to, to difficulties and handling challenges than others. You know, there's a couple different ways to handle challenges. If my hand is a challenge, we can see it and we can turn around and avoid it altogether, or we can go around it and keep on going as though it doesn't exist, or we can lean right into it and take care of it. And as children of God, when we see, as Nehemiah does, and gets this word, He leans in in prayer. He doesn't deny the reality, the ugly reality of of, of Jerusalem and, and of his people. And he aligns himself, doesn't he? He says, forgive us, we have sinned. I have a testimony, right? I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so I, you know. I've got it. Some people, some Christians might say something like, well, I was raised in a Christian home. I really don't have a testimony. We know, like, objectively that that's, that's not true. We all have a testimony. And we've all been, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, we all have, uh, have seen and been a part of experienced many things. Temptations and sins. We've seen other people struggle and have victory. And when we pray for other people, and maybe their, their particular sin isn't one that you have experienced directly, but you have fallen prey to temptation and to sin in some point and in some way, at some time. We all have. It's not a condemnation. That if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So take heart. It's not to beat anybody up. It's just a reality of our, of our existence as children of God. I say all that to say this, is that when we get this burden, when we get this prayer, this heart for prayer, it shouldn't be done with any sort of condescension. Lord, forgive us. We're interconnected. I mean, I don't even know some of you. I know a handful of you. And a couple of you I've just met. But we're interconnected. There's a koinonia, that fellowship that can only happen by spirit-indwelt believers, temples of God, we're living stones, as Peter would say. 
And my mind just went blank. But we're interconnected. Oh, there we go. Thank you, Lord. And so, when we're praying, maybe our sin looks a little different. Maybe our experience isn't quite the same. But I can pray and say, oh, Lord, would you, would you forgive them as you've forgiven me? Would you forgive them, forgive them as I need to be forgiven now for my current struggle, for my current issues, for my current difficulties, for my laziness, for my pride, for doing things in my own will, not to mention all the overt sort of sins that we typically think of when we think of sin, you know, the really out, out, out there stuff that I pray none of us are involved in. The more subtle sins of self-reliance. We sin on many levels. So when we pray for other people, we do so with humility. We do so knowing we're connected. Lord, forgive us. And thank you, Lord, that you're so gracious and kind. Verses uh, halfway through 6, so 6b uh, through 7. He does include himself. I think I've picked up on that. But we have acted very corruptly. He uses this we again against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. And so again, he's referencing Torah. He was educated in the ways of the Old Testament, what we would call the books of Moses, the first five books, the Pentateuch. He says in verse 8, Remember, I pray, the word that you, you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a, a dwelling excuse me, for my name. David Guzik referencing Psalm 81, says that God says to his people, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. God will not open his storehouse until we have opened our mouths in asking him to perform his promises. Praying the word of God is, is and it's the, it's the spirit-inspired, God-inspired, living word of God. When we pray the word of God, I don't think we could pray any better uh, for any person or for any situation. We're praying and pleading the promises and the blessings of God. We're, we're calling on the faithfulness of God. Philippians 1 and 6, that he is faithful to complete the good work in you, that he began in you until the day of completion. How awesome is that? You know, Lord, you are a faithful God. You're a just God. You're a loving God and gracious. Would you hear our prayers? We need you in this time, in this moment. We need your guidance. We need your grace. We need you to redeem and to, and to bring us back out of this place that we found ourselves in. And when we pray scripture over a situation and over a person, it is a, a, it's a effectual prayer. It's very uh, effective, powerful. Verses 10 and 11. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer 
of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's referencing King Artaxerxes, for I was the king's cupbearer. King Artaxerxes Longimanus means uh, he had big hands, Longimanus. King, king Art and um, was the stepson of Esther. And we, can't, we could survey the whole book, but um, Nehemiah found great favor with Artaxerxes there in Shushan. And um, he was able to, uh, you know, go and be released and given not only uh, sort of this writ that allowed him to travel through the territory unharmed uh, back to the Holy Land, uh, but he was given uh, lumber and wood uh, from Lebanon. He was given supplies, all that he needed, because he had such favor with the king. When God moves in our lives, when the Holy Spirit works, nothing can get in the way. You will find favor with the king, as it were, with the, with the authorities, with your employer, with those in your life that do not know the Lord. Because when you're praying and you're calling on the name of the Lord, he moves. Sometimes we have to wait, and that's the hard part, isn't it? Waiting. Oh, he must not be hearing me, and then maybe we tune out, turn off, give up. But I would encourage you, don't do that. Whatever you may be praying for right now, that you would continue to. It says here in, uh, in the text, and, and I, I didn't write it down. Oh, the month of Nisan, verse 1 of chapter 2. This is April. So he's been praying from mid-November, mid-December, Chislev, all the way into April for many months with a broken heart. Quick survey, and then my time will be about up. He gets favor from the king in chapter 2, and he makes it to Jerusalem. Then in verse 11 of chapter 2, and there's some application here. In verse 12, actually, of chapter 2, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. And then I went out to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for my animal under me to pass. Long story short, he took stock of, of what he was facing. In this group, in our number, we are all at different places in our walk with God. There's different maturity levels, if you will. We're all equal, but we're at different points along the process. Some of us have to use continue with this, this point. These walls are built up higher than others. We have more separation. There's more sanctification between our lives and that of the world. But each one of us, at some point, as Paul says, we need to examine ourselves to test ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. And we need to do this, don't we, periodically, at, at, on some interval, to, to self-examine, to go around and look at, at the walls, as it were, at the gates, and to see how we're doing. 
to pray out and uh, to pray to the Lord and to say, Lord, you know, how can I grow? I'm struggling in this area. I seem to be making foolish decisions. I seem to be struggling emotionally. I seem to be lacking wisdom and understanding. And, I, you know, in the whole sort of ebb and flow of the Christian walk, at any given point, I, uh, and I could, I could speak for my wife, Jessica, because I know her a bit, uh, we seem to have th this sort, there's this ebb and flow. And sometimes we're like, man, I, I thought that gate was up or that wall was up. And, and boy, it seems like the gate's a little open and there's bad influence coming in. I want to close with a story from 2 Samuel and 15. You, don't, you can turn there. Um, I'm just going to paraphrase it. But in 2 Samuel and 15, King David's third son, Absalom, has the idea to, you know, take over his father's throne. And he does this um, really subverse, subversively. He goes to the gate of the city for years. Some translations will say 40, others will say four. So there's a pretty big discrepancy depending on the manuscript that's used, but be that as it may, for years. He's at this for a long time. And the people would come in. The leaders of the various um, areas throughout the land would come in to settle disputes and to get uh, the king's ear. And Absalom would go out and it says that he won the hearts of the men, of the leaders, over the course of time. Because they were listening to the wrong voice at the gate. And he was deceiving and leading people astray. And if you guys know the story, Absalom did uh, have a coup. And, and David was on the run out of the city for a time. And, of course, the whole matter was settled. But Absalom is a type of uh, what we would call the Antichrist or that spirit of Antichrist. And so... The gates weren't burnt down. So now the question becomes, and, and closing on this application, what voices are at the gates of your heart and mind that you might be entertaining, that are deceptive, that have, as John would say in 1 John in chapter 2, that spirit of Antichrist that's a deception, that seems wise, that seems like it's going to benefit, but it's actually leading you or I in the wrong direction. This is part of that self-examination that we always have to check. We started watching a show the other day. Netflix, well-written, well-acted. Cinematography was great. You can tell it's got high production value. But there was blasphemy all over it. We said, shut it down. We've had to do this more times than I count. We're just looking for a good show. We don't watch a lot of TV, but we'll have one or two shows that we'll watch a couple times a week. Other than that, I watch drag racing. That's my thing. And uh, we have to, more often than not, turn off the voice at the gate of our heart. Even though it's fiction, even though it's entertainment, they intertwine blasphemous themes and plots that would wiggle their way in. Some of these shows that depict ungodly, immoral behavior that are comedies, sitcoms, what happens is, is we watch them and they're funny, right? Objectively funny. We start to laugh and when we laugh, we relax. Oh, that, they're not so bad. They're, they're, they're funny. They're just like us. And there's some of those heartbreaking little hour-long dramas that, that depict some of these immoral lifestyles and, and we might tend to start crying and feeling and empathetic. But we have to have our walls up. Now, this seems harsh. Now, I understand to some 
But it's the, our, the, our sanctification is the will of God. That's the will of God. That there is some separation, brothers and sisters. And I hope that you're encouraged in that because the world and its ruler, Satan, wants to drag you down and make you ineffective. He wants to harm the church of, of God, the bride of Christ. And let's stand in defiance of that. Let's build those walls up in the best sense and have our gates intact, making wise choices, using wisdom, using discernment, that God would be glorified in our life because there are people that want to come inside the city walls. And if our light isn't shining and there's no difference and we're looking just like them, they're not going to find hope. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. It's living and it's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, and it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training the servant of God for every good work. And Father, I pray that through this simple, simple look at Nehemiah chapter 1 and the greater context, that Lord, your spirit would move in our hearts to live for you, to be set apart for you, that Lord, your light would shine through us. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.